Well, good morning. My name is Bryson, um, and I've had the yeah I have the pleasure and the blessing of of opening up the Word with you this morning. We're going to be in Second Corinthians chapter three. If you would turn in um, your own copy of, of God's Word to Second Corinthians chapter three, um, that'll be found on page nine sixty five in the pew Bibles in front of you. We'll be looking at chapter three verses seven through eighteen together. And as you turn there, I want, to, uh, I want us to think about this question. Have you ever been in a room so dark that you can't see your hand in front of your face? You know that feeling, right? When, when the lights go out and, and you're there blinking, trying to, to widen your eyes, thinking that's going to help. Your hand's up and, and yep, you, you can't see it. I remember as a kid uh, on vacation, uh, with my family, we visited some caves out west. And this wasn't just, you know, you, you walk into a cave kind of cave. This was a, you descend down into a hole in the earth kind of cave. You're, you're uh, going down a ladder type of cave. And I'll never forget one part of the tour. We're, we're down there a, a couple hundred feet down, and it's this beautiful cavern um, inside this, yeah, this cave with all these cool stalagmites and all the other mites that happen down there. The rock formations happening all over the place. But at one point, the tour guide, he turns off the lights. He hits the lights and everything goes dark, like thick dark, a darkness you can feel. You know, in a dark room, there usually is some sort of, of ambient light kind of trickling in underneath, you know, the door, the crack in the door under there or around the, around the shade uh, in the window. And the remaining light, your eyes begin to, they begin to adjust and after a few minutes, you can actually kind of see quite clearly in that, in that dark room. Well, in this cave, if you've ever experienced that, I stood there for, for minutes blinking, going, is it ever going to happen? Can I ever see again? Just waiting for that glimmer of light by which to see, but it never came. Because it was absolute, total darkness. Literally couldn't see my hand an inch in front of my face. You see, the Bible describes us as, as spiritually blind, a veil drawn over our, our hearts, the eyes of our hearts, as it were. But it's even worse than what I described in, in, my, in my story there in the cave, because at least in the cave, I had the humility in the moment to not move around in the darkness to try to find my way out. I was terrified. I actually reached out to try to find my, my dad there and, and, and held on to him in the comfort of his, his presence. But spiritually, our hearts are stubbornly hardened and we are, we're groping around with the veil over our eyes, running into things, tripping over our stuff and our sin. Despite the bruises, we continue on trying to figure out what this life is like without God. This is the imagery Paul uses in our text this morning. Whether this is your first time in a church, or you've been walking with Jesus for decades, we all need to hear this from Paul this morning. Whether we have the veil removed and to see yeah, reality for what it is to believe on Jesus for the first time or to have your resolve in Christ strengthened all the more and to be continually conformed to him. We all, need, we all need to see Jesus and to behold him, to gaze upon him, to see our ministry as, as Christians in Christ as an exceedingly glorious one, fueled by the spirit of the living God. Our text this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7, to, 7 through 18, that shows us this. Let's read that together. We read, verse 7. Now if the ministry of death, 
carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their hearts were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. By the end of this, what Paul wants us to see this morning, if we were to kind of narrow all this down into one yeah, main idea, Paul wants us to convince us of the fact that the ministry of the Spirit is more glorious because through Christ you are transformed. The ministry of the Spirit is more glorious because through Christ you are transformed. In other words, the ministry of Christians is a way more glorious ministry than even Moses. Why? Because Christ transforms us through the Spirit. The text divides neatly into, into two parts, and we're going to consider both this morning together. Part one, we'll cover verses 7 through 11, the surpassing glory of the Spirit. 7 through 11, the surpassing glory of the Spirit. And verses 12 through 18, number two, the transforming power of the Spirit, the transforming power of the Spirit. Number one, the surpassing glory of the Spirit. Paul begins this section with a question. Did you catch that? This question is comparing the glory of the Spirit with the glory of the ministry of, of death. Now what you've got to know right out of the gate is that the structure of this question demands a, an affirmative answer. Paul asks, now if the ministry of death, carved in letters and stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which is being brought to an end, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? The answer is yes, the way Paul structures that. The answer is absolutely yes. It most certainly does have, it has more glory. You see, Paul doesn't pose this question for us for discussion as if, yeah, the answer is open for debate or interpretation. No, Paul knows the answer is yes, but he crafts this question in a way to, to prick our hearts and to reveal what we truly believe about the Spirit. So he begins with this header question in verse 7 and 8. And then he, you notice he follows with three sort of explanatory statements in verses 9, 10, and 11. We'll unpack each yeah, in turn. And he, in each sentence, he's contrasting two things against each other for our own yeah, teaching. For, and he's further proving that in Christ we gain something more glorious than what Moses had. Number one, or the first one is, Christ gives the glorious spirit. This is in verse 7 and 8. 
Christ gives a glorious spirit. And the first question we see here that Christ, yeah, he gives us this glorious spirit. Notice that Paul is, he's further developing this idea from the previous section. In verse 6, if you look back, he says that the, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. It's like he, he pauses here in this idea of, of life and death and the, the letter and the spirit, and he pauses and he says, hey, we're, gonna, we're just going to land here for a second. I want to I I pause. I, wanna, I want you to see this idea through the lens of a greater glory. I want you to see it as clearly as possible. You see, for Paul, the letter that kills from verse 6 that we talked about last week and the ministry of death from verse 7, it's, it's one and the same. It's the old covenant system under the God's law, given to Israel through, through Moses. You see, the law is the ministry of death because while it announced the will of God, the commandments themselves do not give the power to obey. They only, they only reveal the reality of the sin that clings so closely and it exposes us for what it is. Therefore, we are all, all lawbreakers under the condemnation of death. But what is he talking about here with, this, with the Moses' face and the, and the Israelites could not look at it? It's kind of confusing. There's a lot happening here. Paul makes, Paul makes an assumption here that the readers, uh, we, they know or are familiar with some, some history of Israel. It's kind of like he's assuming uh, that you watched the previous TV show season. Yeah, if this was a show, Paul is on like episode 25 and he's, he's drawing from a shared experience in episode 2 or, or 3 way back. And he's assuming, he's on the assumption that you know what's happening there. Well, in order to kind of grasp that, we need to, we need to unpack that and explore it all the more. We need, to, we need to see those events because it's deep in what Paul is saying here for us this morning. So we read it earlier in the service in, in Exodus 34. Dave read it for us. But the backstory is found in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. God had just kept his promises to the people of Israel and he had, he had rescued them from the captivity in Egypt, from the, from the hand of Pharaoh. And he, he parted the Red Sea and Israel crossed on dry ground, saving, saving them, God did, from the full, the full force of, of Egypt's military might bearing down on them. And so to make them his people and to be their God and, and to be present with them, he calls their leader Moses up onto the mountain to receive his, his holy law. And on the mountain, there's thunder and there's lightning and there's smoke everywhere. Why? Because, because God's presence has descended down upon the mountain. And the people, rightly so, they were, they were terrified. It was fearsome. Because God's presence was there. They said, Moses, you go. You go for us. We, we can't approach. But while Moses is with God on the mountain, the, the hearts of the Israelites were still hard, and they rebelled against the God that just saved them. They made an idol a golden calf, and they, and they even worshipped it and said and declared and threw a party that this, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. Now, if you're God, what would you do with these people? This egregious sin of idolatry. And, well, if he was like me, I'd, I'd probably just wipe them out. But instead of, of wiping out the entire nation, God shows them mercy. Those who had sinned were killed, but they weren't completely annihilated. And Moses knowing the purity and the holiness of God, pleads with God after this to, rem to, to, to not remove his presence from among the people. Because, because Moses knows something about the presence of God. He says, please, show me your glory. 
This is from Exodus 34. Listen to this. You don't have to turn there if you want to. But listen to this from Exodus 34. In, in response to Moses' plea to see the glory of God, the Lord responds and he descends on the cloud and he, he stood with him, Moses, there. And he proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord, he passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and of the children and the children's children to the third and to the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head to the earth and worshipped this God. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and sin. And take us for your inheritance. You see, Moses knew something. He knew the presence of God meant everything for the people of God. The presence of God's spirit was the difference between life and death. He returns from this moment down the mountain with his, his, his face shining from the glory of, of the Lord. Why? Because he was in the presence of the Almighty God. He shone. He reflected the glory of the Lord. It radiated from him, and, and in his face, it boldly declared, I have been with God. This wasn't some holy sunburn. Literally, Moses had been, he'd been altered. Moses came face to back, as it were, with the Almighty God and lived. And he had been changed. And the people's response was very appropriate. It was fear. They shrunk back in fear upon seeing the reflected glory of the Lord to them. They could not, they could not handle the glory of the Lord, even in the reflected face of Moses. You see, to those with, with hardened hearts, the glory of the Lord is a fearful and dreadful thing. So this is at play for Paul. This is what he's drawing upon in, in 2 Corinthians 3. So, so back to 2 Corinthians 3. When Paul, when he references the veil over, over Moses' face, he's intending this episode in Israel's history to be drawn back up instantly just to think about it and go, that's what happened. And, and it, all in once, uh, assume this in, in what he's saying in 2 Corinthians 3. Specifically, the presence of God manifesting the glory of God in the law of God to an adulterous and idolatrous people. In other words, Paul is saying the ministry of death, it came with glory, and it was a great and fearsome glory. But it also came to an end. But how much more glory will the spirit of life bring? The spirit grants life because it alone can change hearts, and only with changed hearts can Christ, uh, can, can hearts through Christ, can God's people obey his commands. You see, Christ gives his glorious spirit to his people. A second thing we see here is Christ also gives glorious righteousness. Look again in, in verse, verse 9. Instead of condemnation, what came with the glory in the law under the old covenant, in Christ, we Christians receive exceedingly more in his righteousness. By this, 
Paul is showing us that through that those sinners are, are condemned by the law before God and deserve the due penalty of death, by grace and through trust in Lord Jesus Christ, we can exchange our condemnation and death for Christ's perfect righteousness and life. Paul is saying that there is, there is nothing more glorious than sinners in the courtroom of God being declared right before God and set free from death and condemnation. There's nothing more glorious to Paul. In fact, Paul says even in verse 10, you'll notice, compared, yeah, compared to the surpassing glory of being given Christ's righteousness and him taking my place, the old system of death through the law has come to have no glory at all. It's non-existent. It's obsolete. God's forgiveness in Christ so far surpasses the glory of God in the law that it seems to not even exist. You see, Christ gives the glorious spirit. Christ also gives glorious righteousness. And Christ also gives us eternal glory. He finishes this in verse 11. Take a look at verse 11. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. In other words, Paul is saying that not only does the ministry of the spirit of life eclipse the law uh, and death, and the ministry of righteousness exceed that of condemnation, but there's another glorious difference between the old and, and the new, and that is the length, time. The old order was dependent on the letter and the spirit not the spirit, and so it could not last. It was transient, finite, unsustainable. In contrast, all Christians in the new covenant are, are sealed and secured permanently in Christ, fixed and united with Christ in an everlasting covenant. A covenant that dawned with Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and that continues to this day and will continue for eternity. It's, it's ours. It's our permanent and eternal glory. I think it's worth pausing just to consider these truths for us. I mean, these truths are amazing. Don't let these glorious truths just, just pass you by in this morning that's mundane and routine. I mean, this is amazing. Christian, these are true of you in Christ. You have the spirit of the living God in you, the spirit of life that hid Moses in the cleft of the rock so as not to kill him with his glory. It's in you. You, ha you have exchanged your condemnation before a holy God. And you now have received the imputed righteousness of Christ and now stand forgiven before a holy and glorious almighty God. And your, your standing is permanent. It's secure as you wait for that final resurrection. This glory in Christ will not fade. It will not end. It is immovable. Nothing can stop you from the eternity with God in Christ. This means that, yes, while our, our bodies break down and fail us, while there's immense pain and back pain and neck pain and, and all sorts of, of pain and trauma or, or facing horrific yet diagnosis of, of medical stuff and anxieties and uncertainties of what's to come, future days that are not even promised, or in the pain of, of, of deep relational wounds, of betrayal, those that we're supposed to trust, but wound after wound and blow after blow, and even 
sin comes in and mutual sin comes in and it's a mess and there's no way out. We know that even in those dark, deep burdens and valleys, these truths remain true. We can confidently, Christians, rejoice in Christ that soon we will receive that perfected, resurrected body. And all the relational hurts and pains, they will be vindicated by the Lord. Where's the hope in that? It's, it's the eternal day compared to eternity. These afflictions will seem as a vapor as we stand shoulder to shoulder in God's throne room, praising him forever and ever. That's not to downplay the pain of it. But it is meant to, our hope is to look into the future, look at these promises of God, and find strength from the eternity that is to come. Because ours is a permanent, everlasting covenant of eternal glory. This is our firm hope, brothers and sisters. Well, equally true, these, these truths are a word of sobering caution to those of us who can be prone to, to spiritual complacency. In seemingly good seasons, too, how quickly can we forget the source of our redemption and begin to apathetically lean on our own successes or our, our own religious accolades? How quickly can we take spiritual blessings designed to draw us nearer to Christ in gratefulness and then begin to attribute them to our own merit, to our own ob- obedience? These, these truths that we just talked about, they should act as a, as a focusing lens to properly align our sights on the origin of where they come from. What do you have that you uh, have not received? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? As Paul makes clear in, in Philippians, but whatever, I, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, not doing it on myself that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, Paul says. Christ gives us this glorious spirit, his glorious righteousness, and a lasting eternal hope. The surpassing glory of the spirit is made manifest in human hearts through Christ. That that transforms us. Number two, the transforming power of the spirit. The transforming power of the spirit. Paul shifts gears in this section and shows us what the transformed life looks like for Christians. We enjoy from Paul here a description of a full spectrum of the transformation that occurs in a person when the Spirit is, is at work. He shows us the transforming power first in the Spirit-fueled boldness. Spirit-fueled boldness. Look at uh, verse 12. Paul writes, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. 
In light of what we gain in Christ, Paul makes a pretty surprising statement here. What is the the result of these truths in in 7 through 11? What should they they produce in us or in believers? Paul says we are to be very bold. It's boldness. That might come surprising to you. It's a boldness that is firmly grounded in the hope of this everlasting covenant. In other words, the confidence we have in in the future realities that God promises rooted in the fulfillment of promises we presently taste, should fuel us toward a bold faith in our promise-keeping God. I'll say that again. In other words, the confidence we have in the future realities that God promises, rooted in fulfillment of the promises we're tasting right now, should fuel us toward a bold faith in our promise-keeping God. Paul reaches back again, if you notice, that Exodus narrative and, and presses further in on this, this metaphor of veil, but then he changes it a little bit and, and, and switches it up a little bit uh, to show us uh, the, our own hardness of heart. He shows us, in this case, the boldness and proclamation of eternal glories. What, what, is it, what does it not look like? He says, we are very bold, but not like Moses, who hid his face under a veil. In Exodus, we learn that that each time Moses returned from conversing with the Lord, he would proclaim the words of the Lord and then cover his face the veil. I don't think what Paul is saying here is that he was covering his face so as to prevent Israel from seeing the radiance of his face fade. I don't see this as as, as Moses being deceptive of trying to cover the fading glory as if the fading were the, were the focus. The glory of the Lord reflected in, in Moses' face was fearsome and blinding to look, to look at. I think keeping Paul's context of this entire section in mind helps us stay grounded in Paul's main point here, which is not the fading aspect necessarily, namely, not to clarify Moses' motive in the veil, but simply to show Moses did indeed veil a temporary glory that was destined to be temporary and come to an end. In other words, the point is that the veil was there because of the blindness of the glory of the Lord. And yes, it came to an end. But this is exceedingly surpassed by a bold and unveiled and eternal glory that we share in the new covenant. And that is the point. Our commentators, one commentator summarizes like this, unlike Moses who wore a veil to conceal the temporary glory of the Old Covenant, we, Christians, boldly proclaim the permanent glory of the New Covenant. Unlike Moses, who who wore a veil to conceal that temporary glory of the Old Covenant, because they couldn't handle it. Israel could not handle the glory of the Lord reflected in in the face of Moses. We, we, because the Spirit has changed our hearts, we now boldly proclaim that permanent glory of the New Covenant. The emphasis is on our our bold, unveiled proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. We are to be Christians who open our mouths to those around us and declare the good news of Jesus to those perishing in their sin. It isn't a ministry of fear, but one of boldness. Now, caveat, this isn't a boldness based on on guilt. This isn't a guilt trip. For you to just go out and, 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 and share the gospel more so you can feel better about yourself. For then, if, if we do that, we then crawled back under that ministry of law and death. 
Instead, as Paul directs, we look to Jesus and we remember these truths that we've covered already. And, and out of the overflow of love for God who saves wretched sinners like us, and out of an overflow of devotion to our new King Jesus, the old is, is gone, the new has come, we, we boldly, thoughtfully and tenderly, yes, but boldly engage others with the beauty of Christ. Spirit-fueled fueled boldness is what Paul has in mind. He also sees spirit-fueled sight. Spirit-fueled sight. Look again at starting in verse, in verse 14. But their minds were, were hardened. For to this day, when, the, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. See, you see, Paul, once again, he, he picks up this metaphor of the veil, but here he shifts kind of how he, how he uses it. Whereas before, it was primarily applied to Moses. Now, Paul shifts and he links it to the people of Israel. Both the Israelites in Moses' day, did you catch that, but also the Christ-resisting Israelites in Paul's day. But even more strikingly, Paul says Israel's mind and heart, they were, they were hardened as a result of, of the veil. Paul is saying the same problem exists in, in, in Israel in Paul's day as it did in the ministry of Moses. Oh, the problem is a hardening of the mind and the heart against, against God. See, the picture that Paul wants to paint for us here is the, is the chief problem of human condition. It's the sin of our hearts. See, sin, as a, as a biblical category, is seen primarily as, as the rebellion of all peoples everywhere against a God as the creator of all things and as the one to be worshipped above all others. The prophet Isaiah declares, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone, everyone, to his own way. And the result of this, this sin is a, it's a hardening of the mind and it's a hardening of the heart. And that's what Paul is driving towards to, to get your attention with. With our minds, we, we, we intellectually just dismiss God becoming deceived. We become deceived by the schemes of, uh, of, of, of Satan, the lies of the world, until before we know it, we just wholesale bought the lie. But Paul says here that it doesn't stop with just the mind. It also, with our hearts, we, we harden ourselves against God, meaning our spiritual arrogance and pride, in our spiritual arrogance and pride, we become increasingly stubborn and foolish. Stiff-necked was the words of the the Old Testament writer. That stubbornness and that foolishness is against the truth. We don't want to know the truth. We don't want to hear that we're wrong. Don't tell me I'm, I'm messed up. In the book of Romans, Paul gives us a, a, a grisly ending picture. Speaking of this, this rebellion, he says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, our minds, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what they ought not to be done. 
They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, de- deceit, and mal- maliciousness. They are gossips, they are slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is not just the worst of all sinners. This, is, this describes all of humanity apart from Christ. We're all in that. Paul says we are blinded. The spiritual veil covers our hearts apart from Christ. But praise God, that is not how he left us. Verses 16 and 17, you look down there with me, 2 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, Paul says, But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and when the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Not slavery in sin, but freedom. Paul says it doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to die. There is, there is a way out. He says, turn, turn to the Lord. Repent. That's what it literally means. Turn, repent. Turn from the the direction you're going and turn with a a humble heart to the Lord. Literally run the opposite direction. Because you're headed towards death. That's what that's that's the message of, of Paul. That's the message of the Bible. Go the opposite direction. Turn to Jesus instead. Because you see, Jesus, the God man, both God and man, came to do what you could not do, and Israel could not do, and that is he perfectly obeyed the law of God. He perfectly obeyed where every other human, including me and you and everyone in this room, failed. And because he was perfect, he was innocent. He was innocent, and yet he still, according to the will of the Lord, chose to be the perfect substitute to die in your place, drinking the full wrath of God against sinners. I mentioned the verse from Isaiah earlier. In finishing his sentence, Isaiah says, and yet the Lord has laid on him, that is Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Jesus is the wrath bearer for you in faith. And Jesus didn't just stay dead, but he rose again, defeating death and offering forgiveness to all who place their trust in him. Friend, Paul's call is clear for you this morning. There are those of us here who would would not say they believe this good news in, in Jesus. The call is clear. Turn to the Lord. Go the other way. And when you do, if you notice the way Paul says it, He, not you, he removes the veil. He helps you to see. He helps you to see and to taste the sweetness of the freedom that is found in Jesus and in his grace. Praise God. Paul concludes with spirit-fueled change. Spirit-fueled change change. In this last section, this glorious verse 18, Paul gathers up all these themes of the Old and New Covenant. The Spirit, the glory, the veil, Jesus, 
turning to him, he packs it all into, into one glorious summary sentence for us, rich with truth for us this morning. Verse 18 reads, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I'll leave you with, with four brief observations on this, on this verse, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Four observations. Number one, and we all. The verse begins with, and, and we all. This is for all Christians. Everywhere, from all time. Not just here in this room, but, but all time. This applies to those who have known the Lord for five minutes and those who have known the Lord for 50 years. All in Christ are included in this promise. Those who are suffering and those who aren't. Those who are fighting sin well and those who aren't. This isn't just for the super spiritual. And some of us need to hear that this morning. It's not just for the super spiritual that look like they have it all together on the outside because we don't. It's also for those who failed last night and failed this morning. This is true of, of all Christians in Christ. And we all beholding the Lord. Number two, and we all with unveiled face. With unveiled face. Observation number two, with, with unveiled face. No longer is there, is there a veil or a person separating us from the presence of, of God. The veil has been taken away and has been removed. How? Because the heart change in Christians applied not because of your own work or by your own merit, but by the Spirit of God, which is a gl more glorious, more glorious work than that of the law. You see, we, we all see God as Moses did, and yet we see him, believe it or not, even more clearly than Moses did. God hid Moses, remember, in the rock, only to let him see the Lord's back. Otherwise, he would die from the glory of the Lord. But we now can gaze intently at the face of God in Christ Jesus. Boldly standing in the presence of the Father because of the substitute of the Son of God and his blood. With an unveiled face, we behold the Lord. Third observation. We all, with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. You see, as, as you behold Jesus and look to Jesus in the pages of the Bible, in the pages of Scripture, you are beholding the very glory of God. Transformation in your life, Christian, comes from seeing Jesus, not by trying harder necessarily. You can, you can, never, truly, you can never truly encounter Jesus and not be changed. He will change you, and he is changing you. And this change does not depend ultimately upon you. Did you notice that? It's not you transforming yourself. It's not me transforming me. It's not someone else transforming me. It's, it's the Spirit working and transforming me. The Spirit of God applies change in the heart of Christians as they spend time with Jesus and behold Jesus in God's Word. Christians gaze and the Spirit does the work. Christians gaze and He works to your heart to conform it 
both your heart and your mind, as Romans 12 says, to be more to the likeness of Christ. He applies the work, which, which is important because, which means you can become more like Christ. I mean, that's significant because one of the doubts that Satan wants to breed in our, in our hearts is that we can't actually change. We can't actually look more like Jesus. The truth is, is the opposite. The Lord says that you can look more like Christ, beholding Jesus. And that truth is not rooted in, again, your own, your own ability. It's in God's sufficiency. It's not in your track record. It's in his track record. It's not in your merit. It's in Jesus' merit. And so I think the, the right question to ask is, I, I, mean, I encourage you, what are you beholding? As Paul lays out for us, we become more like or, or look like and, and, and act like. We, we, we absorb in, in a way, that's the way God made us, the thing, the very thing which receives our heart's worship and admiration. What is it that you behold that you are becoming like right now? You see, hearts, hearts that are tuned to the world, they become more like the world. Hearts that gaze at Jesus become more like, more like Jesus. That's number three. Lastly and, and finally, we all, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed, it's happening to you, from one degree of glory to another. From one degree of glory to another. You see, the direction of, of transformation, it is, it is sure and it is steady. The direction is steady, but the pace, and with all of its, its ups and downs, it can vary in our lives, can it not? And often, it is, it is the pleasure of God to change his children slowly over time. It's not a microwave, a microwave thing. He, he, yeah, he takes pleasure from changing you and working in you and through people and through his word from one degree to the next slowly. One day at a time, one week at a time, one month at a time. Why? Because in the moment of all that, who do you have to trust in? Him. In the middle, though, of this walk, I'm sure you can relate, um, it, it can be very discouraging not to, see, not to see lasting change happening. We can feel like the change is, is it's just so slow that we, we can't even see it and we're, we're weighed down by the sin which clings so closely. The encouragement to you this morning is, is take heart. The Lord will finish his good work on you, Christian. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. And he is working even now. Keep looking at him. You see, God's view of your transformation into the likeness of Christ is what sets the pace, not your view. And his view is greater. His view is right, and his view is good. A helpful thing for you would be to surround yourself with, yeah, with faithful Christians who are walking with you and can help you see that even when you cannot, that change is happening and encourage you and show you Christ working in you to see the Spirit working in you all the more. And, 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 and help you on into obedience. It's not just passive. It's working into obedience. And because this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit, set your mind on the things of the Spirit, Christian, Romans 8, so that the Spirit of Him 
who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And Galatians produces the fruit of the Spirit. As we close, I want to, uh, I want to leave you with um, yeah, a, uh, a song from, from Charles Wesley that I found w- this week and was, I felt, felt like it was very appropriate and just uh, encouraging to me, so I want to share it with you in, in closing and then we'll, then we'll pray. Charles Wesley wrote these words. Finish then thy new creation. This is speaking of, of the, the consummation, the end, as we look forward to the hope. Finish then thy new creation. Let us see thy great salvation, perfectly restored in thee, changed from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. Amen. You pray with me. Father, we ask that, uh, that you would be the one that changes us. We know this is true. We ask for your word as we sung before, to dig deep into our hearts, root your word into our hearts that we may be transformed by the Spirit, Father. Give us, give us strength to obey, the courage in the middle of yeah, in, in, in deep and dark valleys. Help us to come alongside one another and see, yeah, see the, the, the good things that Christ, you are doing in us and each other and encourage each other all the more. Father, encourage us in the midst of our, of our suffering and our, yeah, our, our discouragement when we don't see those things. Help us all the more to, to rely on you, to trust that you are the one that does the transforming work in us. Help us, Lord. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.